You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, it's Motley Fool Money co-host Dylan Lewis here. If you're listening to us, it's because you love following the stock market and learning about business stories. If you're looking to keep learning and unlocking your potential, then you should check out the Think Fast, Talk Smart podcast produced by our friends over at the Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning best business podcast that's received nearly 43 million downloads and is the number one career podcast in 95-plus countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills, from making small talk that leaves a big impression, to keeping your nerves in check while speaking, to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, Strong communication skills are important in business and life in general. That's why you'll hear from pros like neuroscientist Andrew Huberman on how to manage speaking anxiety, as well as speechwriter, best-selling author, and friend of the fool Dan Pink on how to take risks in your communication, and psychologist Kelly McGonigal on how to harness nervous energy to fuel powerful presentations. All that and so much more available on the Think Fast Talk Smart podcast. So what are you waiting for? Listen every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Hey everyone, I'm Jean Chatsky. Thank you so much for joining us today on Her Money. We are closing in on the end of 2022, which is amazing and also hard to believe and also very welcome all at the same time. And something that we've heard from many of our listeners year round, but especially the last couple of weeks is that in 2022, you're looking for ways to do more with your money. And by more, I don't just mean earning more, although that is always nice. And I also don't just mean traditional philanthropy or charitable donations, although that can be so meaningful. I'm talking about investing for good investing in the kinds of companies and funds that allow you to earn a profit, but that also have a hand in helping to create the kind of change that you want to see in the world. In other words, doing good and doing well at the very same time. I think too often when we think about the stock market, when we think about capitalism, we think about companies that put profits before people or corporations that value shareholder return over pretty much anything. And don't get me wrong, there are tons of companies out there that are not making a positive impact, but guess what? We don't have to give them our money. Instead, we can put our money to work with organizations that care and make money at the same time. I'm talking about companies that are looking to elevate women, that are carbon neutral, that are fighting the same fight for social justice and change that we are. But where do we begin? Our regular listeners know we've covered this topic before. We've talked about sustainable investing, impact investing, ESG investing, which by the way, stands for environmental, social, and governance. And no matter what you call it, It's all the same form of investing. It's the kind of investing that you do when you're leading with your conscience. To dive into this world with us today, I'm excited to be joined by another Jean, Jean Case, CEO of the Case Impact Network, which she founded in 2020 to, quote unquote, usher in a new era of more inclusive capitalism. 
Earlier this year, she launched For What It's Worth, F-W-I-W, which has quickly become the go-to source for new investors looking to confidently invest for both profit and purpose. Jean also serves as chair of the board of National Geographic. She's the author of the bestseller, Be Fearless, Five Principles for a Life of Breakthroughs and Purpose. Jean, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. Thanks, Jean. I've really been looking forward to this conversation today. Thanks for having me. Thanks. I have to say, I started to read your newsletter this year, and after getting it for a few weeks, I told my producer, Catherine, that we just had to get you on the show, because I find that you're breaking things down in a way that all investors can understand. Can you tell us just a little bit about what inspired you to start the Case Impact Network and this newsletter? Sure. Well, you know, you did such a great job at the opening, Gene, of talking about the opportunity that really is an exciting one today for investors. And one of the things I love about, you know, coming on your show today and just more broadly, the influence of women in investing is that they are really helping to drive a different future in investing. And the market is feeling it in a very big way. They combined with next generation investors. And so I do think we see a world in which there there's a demand for, we say, you know, invest in the world you want. And there's been this myth forever that I know you know well, Jean, which is, look, if you're investing in something that's good for the world, you can't necessarily make the same amount of return. And of course, I think we've sufficiently debunked that myth with a lot of data that's come out that shows exactly the opposite. That companies focused on ESG tend to outperform. That women-led and diverse teams in companies outperform and have a higher innovation sort of score. So I think it's really good news. But what led me into it really was you know, a very personal journey that I'd been on where I wanted to invest in this way and felt like there weren't really good resources to go to, to know how to do that with strong knowledge or with confidence. And, you know, just very briefly, I had the benefit of being with a startup many years ago that became a public company, AOL. So I found myself having investable resources at a very early age. So between sort of next gen, I kind of walked in their shoes and being woman investor myself. I'm super excited to bring this solution to readers. It's interesting. You call it a myth. And I think the problem with it as a myth is that it used to be true. I mean, when I was a puppy reporter at Forbes magazine two decades ago, and we were talking about socially responsible investing, you couldn't actually do as well as people who were investing across the board. It's no longer true now, but people, I think, tend to pull up those old stories, lean on some of that old coverage, and we have to just keep reminding people that it's not the case anymore. Yeah, well, I do think, Jean, I'm really glad you brought that up because I think still today in the market, investors have choices. In some cases, some investors might be willing to be concessionary, you know, where there's a higher degree of risk because of what they choose to invest in. But I think more broadly across the stock market and, you know, in different ways that the retail investors are looking to invest, there are so many options today where you do not have to feel like you're risking concessionary returns to put your capital to work for good. 
there is a lot of terminology in this world. There's a lot of lingo. I teed up some of the terms that we use, sustainable investing, impact investing, ESG investing. Is there a term that you prefer or that is the norm that we should be sticking with in this world today? What my big hope is that this comes to define just investing more broadly, but we're not there today. And I think all of those terms confuse investors. What's the difference? And we can spend a minute if you want and just kind of going there. We've been using socially conscious investing as a term because we realize that when investors hear sustainable investing, they often think that only applies to environmental or green kind of related investments. But the true definition of that is sustainable. It includes DEI. It includes a lot of other things that would make an organization more sustainable. Because at the end of the day, you know, sustainable investing is looking to the long term and making sure that the growth and the returns can be there. So I think that's one one of the challenges is this what we call a nomenclature problem. So one of the things we routinely do is break that down for our readers. So what is the difference between sustainable investing and impact investing, for instance? And DEI, diversity, equity, and inclusion? Correct. That's exactly right. It's what you were talking about earlier, you know, where there are a number of investors who've come into the market and they want to reward the companies because they know there will be better outcomes. And for a social justice purpose, they want to reward the companies or the funds that are looking heavily at how to make room for more women and people of color in leadership. And, you know, I'm super excited by the growth there. Just in the last year in private funds, there have been 275 new female-led funds, which, of course, many of them are bringing a gender lens to what they're investing in. So we're seeing a lot of growth, both in terms of opportunities for investors, but in terms of the number of investors that want to invest in this way. I'm ready to ask you another question, and I'm realizing I still don't know what term to use to get us to the end of the show. So should I be using socially responsible or impact investing or ESG? I would say socially responsible because let's spend just a minute on impact investing and why I wouldn't recommend that. First of all, you may have true impact investors in your audience, and I bet you do. But impact investing is just a little bit different in this way. You know, you hear impact investing, and it would make total sense that that's any investing that is really driving positive positive impacts as we're talking about. But it's an early term that took hold that really means you're looking for both a financial and a social return, but that the companies you're investing in are doing that through their very products and services, right? So you have a Warby Parker, which is an impact investing opportunity. And why is it an impact investing opportunity? Because although we tend to think of it, and it is one of the hottest retail brands in eyewear, you know, they have buy a pair, give a pair. So when you're actually purchasing their products, some impact is happening in the world. So that's really the difference there is, is the product or service itself creating a positive impact versus maybe a company that's looking more at, you know, how to be more environmentally sustainable. So what has happened in this world of socially responsible investing in the last year and a half during the pandemic. How has it changed? It's exploded, to be honest with you. You talked about ESG earlier. Another term, investors go, wait, how many terms and letters are there going to be? But ESG, as you pointed out, stands for Environmental, Social, and Governance. 
there has been a 10x increase in new investments in ESG-related you know, investment opportunities. 10x in two years. I mean, when you see that, that is a skyward trend that tells you that it really is exploding. Impact investing, I just talked about how that's a little bit different than ESG, is growing as well at a remarkable pace. And indeed, we think this might be the year 2021, when we get the data at the end of the year, where it might tip above a trillion dollars in assets management. So for many of us that have been involved in this space for a really long time, you know, I think when you hit the trillion mark, it's very, very real. Are there particular drivers that have been leading this charge? Is climate change the driver? Is it social justice? Is there one big thing that you can point to or even a couple? Yeah, I would say it's a perfect storm and you just hit on a couple of them. But I would also even point to the George Floyd murder because one of the things we've seen is a dramatic growth in funding Black founders and in looking at the diversity of teams and making sure people of color, you know, are finding a more equitable path forward in both companies and funds. I talked about the growth in investing in women. I think the Me Too movement played a huge role in, you know, bringing leaders to the table about what really is happening in our space and are we equitable with women? Do we have any issues there, et cetera? And climate change is another factor. I think that's playing a role in this explosive growth. You know, the COP26 conference got a lot of attention, much more than it ever has in years past. And as chairman of the National Geographic Society, I see very clearly the growing number of people that have a great concern around climate. And it's very funny because NYU, for instance, is tracking consumer behavior and the choices they're making based on whether products are sustainable or not. And there again, it's just skyward. Hey, everybody, it's Jean. If you want to continue unlocking your potential, then you should also check out Think Fast, Talk Smart, produced by our friends at Stanford Graduate School of Business. Think Fast, Talk Smart is the Webby Award-winning Best Business Podcast that received nearly 50 million downloads. It's the number one career podcast in 95 countries, so you know it's worth your time. Each week, host and Stanford lecturer Matt Abraham sits down with experts to discuss the best tips to hone and develop your communication skills from making small talk that leaves a big impression to keeping your nerves in check while speaking to being more persuasive. Whether you're working on your elevator pitch or planning an important meeting, strong communication skills are critical to business. All that and so much more is available on Think Fast, Talk Smart. Listen every Tuesday wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube. Hey there, listeners. It's Nima Gobir. I'm the co-host of MindShift, the podcast where we explore the future of learning and how we raise our kids. I don't teach math. I don't teach reading. I teach people. You'll hear from teachers, parents, researchers, and students as we uncover innovative approaches in and out of the classroom. It holds a lot about how we want students and young people to move through the world, how we want to set them up for success. Find MindShift wherever you get your podcasts. We are talking with Jean Case, CEO of the Case Impact Network. So prescription, a start, a way to 
shake it up a little bit. If you've had all your money in index funds or target date funds and you're thinking, okay, I want to do better. It's a great question, Jean. And again, it's part of the reason that we created for what it's worth. I wrote a piece on three keys to getting started, but I'm happy to run through those with you. That would be amazing. For many people, they operate off of lists, right? And what I often encourage people to do is literally sit down, whether you're using a keyboard or a pen and paper, and make a list of the things that you care about in this world and things you really want to see changed. And that can create a really great screen. You know, you might have a passion for clean water and making sure there's more investments there or whatever. That can create a great screen for then going out and seeing what's available, whether it be companies or funds that can help you invest in those areas. But I think it really starts in a very personal way with what do I care most about and what would I like to see my capital used to try to drive change? And I've done this in my own investing and I've been successful in looking across all asset classes to find ways to deploy that capital. So you can do that whether you're already a little bit invested in this realm or whether you're just getting started. Are there any tools that you like for screening for beginners? You know, there are some tools that are out there that some of the sites that are out there offered. I even believe Fidelity has a screen as well. And you can go as layered or you could go very top line. Some of the screens, of course, get rather complicated and might be beyond what some of your listeners really are looking for. But maybe even before you read those screens, you know, if you really have something in your gut around certain areas, and of course you have, you know, so many women in your audience, if that's something you care about, gosh, there's more ways than ever before to invest in women with confidence and with, you know, really reputable firms. So I would say start with that. The second piece is if you're investing already, chances are you're using a platform or you have an advisor. But obviously for those who haven't jumped into this space, there is an opportunity to use some of the newer platforms, some advisors who are more experienced in this. And we've covered some things in the newsletter. And by the way, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can get access to all the past newsletters. But we have covered like, how do I know if my advisor knows about this? And just if I can go off on a tangent for just a minute. Of course you can. You know, Ernst & Young is a big firm that tracks a lot of things. And one of the things that they came out with as data a couple years ago said that two categories of investors are at risk for advisors. One is women and the other is next gen because they want to use their capital differently, typically than those that, you know, if they inherit money, if they ultimately become in charge when they weren't before, they want to do it differently. And so 70% of them said they would fire the current wealth advisor because they just don't think they were knowledgeable in areas that they care about, or they didn't really see using capital in a strategic way to drive change. So I think we're going to see a lot of disruption in the advisory world. But again, you don't really have to have formal advisory these days. You know, we do have these platforms like Robinhood, which today 50% of people investing in Robinhood are investing for the first time. But all of these platforms can guide you somewhat on opportunities 
communities and to the areas that you care about. And then the third point, so just to go back to what I said, make your list, right? And then find a way either through an advisor or through a platform to invest. And then finally, and I really want to underscore this, let data be your friend because, you know, you make sure you're looking at both the returns you're getting but also keeping up from time to time. And again, here's where we're trying to provide a service by letting folks know some of the changes that are taking place in the market. But let data guide, you know, am I, is this really having the kind of impact or change I wanted it to have? Is the company doing what they said they were going to do? Is the fund investing in the way they said they were going to invest? Well, tangentially to that, I mean, is there a feeling among investors that, our decisions actually can help hold companies accountable. That the fact that we're putting our dollars to work in this way, that the growth in this type of investing has been, as you put it, explosive. Is there a feeling that we're actually pushing companies along even faster than they might have moved otherwise? There is no question, and particularly for any of your listeners who are already you know, in this form of investing, I can't underscore strongly enough the influence both women and next generation have had on the finance world. Now, here's the thing. I think today the broader world of finance see it as a distant tsunami that's heading their way and everyone is scrambling to try to get ready. But the reason they know it's been largely driven off of, you know, both women and next gen as investors who just see the world very differently. But to give you some sense, I mean, I talked about the 10x growth in ESG. Another just kind of little fun anecdote that I think speaks to it as well is, of course, companies do quarterly earnings calls. And I'm sure, you know, many of your listeners from time to time will tap in or get the summary of those quarterly earnings calls. And two years ago, ESG was mentioned three times in quarterly earnings calls. And last quarter, it was over 150 companies that mentioned it. So that's like one of those, you know, it's real, it's happening, there's momentum. But I do, one of the reasons I wanted to really underscore the data point, Gene, is because I think the most important thing for your listeners to hear, and it's scary, but I'm going to come back and address why I think it's okay. Today, there is absolutely no standard if you use the term impact investing if you use the term ESG or sustainable. There's no regulation around it. You know, the SEC has been looking at really trying to make sure that investors can be protected by ensuring that there's a baseline of things you must do to qualify under those, you know, categories. So the reason it's important to watch data is because a couple hundred companies produce annual sustainability reports. But trust me, those same companies are not necessarily in the sustainable realm that you'd want to see if you're going under that title. We call that, of course, greenwashing. But data can help, you know, keep the company honest or certainly protect you as an investor if you're not seeing what the fund or the company promised. So for me, I've actually moved out of things when I felt like the action that the fund was taking wasn't in alignment with what they promised me as an investor. The other big shift, of course, that's underway is this great transfer of wealth, right? From yeah. from boomers to younger generations, 70% of that is expected to end up in the hands of women. Yes. What do you expect to see as that comes along? 
Oh, man, I think it's first of all, it's already coming along. And I think it's going to be a very beautiful thing, because I think that women look at the world and look at capital differently as a tool to be used to drive change. And I think what's really great is the market is readying for that, even though it's already underway. The market understands how big that number is going to be. So you do see, for instance, in the advisory realm, truly a scramble to try to have sort of a track record or a knowledge base around things that they know women will care about as they come in. And of course, you can never just generalize and say it's true of everyone, but there is no question data has made it very clear that women and next-gen investors really want to use their capital differently than those that came before them. You mentioned earlier, and our listeners can't see you, but I can see you, and you're wearing a very cool Nat Geo hoodie, that you are the um, chairman of the National Geographic Foundation. What's that like? What are your thoughts about the world of climate these days? And if you were going to pick, you know, your top pick for investing in making this earth a safer place for our children, where would you be putting your money? Yeah, well, it's actually the National Geographic Society. Oh, sorry. Okay. It's a 133-year-old institution, and we care very deeply for the planet. So it's hard to pick one thing, but I will tell you one area that I think all investors or prospective investors that are interested in climate should be watching, and that's battery technology. Because, you know, we hear a lot about electric vehicles, but we don't hear as much about the battery technology. And the reason they need to be watching that is for electric vehicles to scale, we need many more companies providing solutions on the battery front. And that will be everything from new battery development, as well as recycling of existing batteries that, believe it or not, will you know become another problem for the planet if we don't find another way to recycle and reuse them. But it's an exciting area of development. But the interesting thing that a lot of people don't realize, Jean, is so I own an electric vehicle. And you think, oh, you know, great, like environmentally, like do But what a lot of people don't realize is the components that go into batteries that basically allow the electric vehicle to run are mined in places where there's terrible human rights abuses. And often in the process of making the battery, there can be environmental problems as well. So I think the battery technology world holds really great promise, but I think it's really important for investors who care about this to pay close attention to, you know, what are the practices of, because for instance, there's even a a battery ETF now, exchange traded fund, of course, that people can invest in so you don't have to make your individual bets. But that's a real area of excitement. And it will determine, I think, the potential growth and scale for electric vehicles. Gene Case, CEO of the Case Impact Network. Thank you so much for doing this. I think you opened a lot of eyes. Can you tell everybody where to get your newsletter? Sure. It's forwhatitsworth.co.co. And you can come there and write on the front page. It's a free subscription. It's less than five minutes every Thursday as a read. And as I said, we really try to take the jargon out of it. And it's still very early for us. And so we welcome all of your listeners and welcome your insights or input. If you actually do subscribe, let us know what you think. Thanks so much. Have a great rest of the day. Thanks, Jean. Joy to be with you. And we'll be right back with Catherine and your mailbag.
Her Money is supported by BCU, a credit union that helps its members feel confident and assured with the peace of mind that comes from making smart financial decisions. Visit www.bcu.org to learn ways to secure your financial future. And we are back with Catherine and your mailbag. Hey, Catherine. Hey, Jean. I have to say I have to go look at my portfolio because I feel like I am woefully behind in doing enough. And this is, I think, our third show on ESG, Socially Responsible Investing. And I have to start practicing what I preach more. Yeah, I've done some. I haven't transitioned my whole portfolio, but I would like to. Oh, and that's Norman, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) This is what happens when you have a new puppy. It's been a long time since I've had a new baby, but he was just crying in the other room and I couldn't let him stay there, which is what I should have done, but I couldn't. And now he's chewing on my microphone. So we'll just have to hope that all goes well for the rest of this recording. But I agree with you. I think there is a lot to learn. I think there's a lot to come. I don't think we could do too many shows on this topic. I think we could cut it a lot of different ways because our listeners have questions. And I think based on her last answer, I'd love to see us do a show that's just about climate change, all about climate change and investing in climate change, what the opportunities are. Yeah, that's such a hot topic right now of, you know, investing in the companies that are directly making efforts and then also investing in the companies that are carbon neutral or that plant a tree for every purchase you make. There's a real wide spectrum of companies that are doing something, and I would love to look into that. And what it means. I mean, uh, part of what I felt was really helpful about talking to Jean was just the definitions, right? There are a lot of definitions, and I love that they are going to get some sort of oversight. I remember I was talking earlier about when I was a young reporter at Forbes magazine, one of the stories that I remember writing was about the fact that there were a slew of new mutual funds that had just tacked the name retirement onto their title. They were not target date funds. Target date funds did not exist at that point. It was all marketing. And what she was saying was that a lot of this is marketing and you don't exactly know what you're getting with some of these labels, with some of these monikers. And we need to know because we're doing this for a reason. We're not doing this just to grab a good return. We're actually doing this to get a result in terms of change in the world. And knowing the difference, being able to tell the difference in what's real and what's marketing is so important. Yeah, that should be a class in school. It reminds me of that Mad Men episode where Don Draper decides to help the tobacco companies market with the tagline of, it's toasted. It's toasted. And the tobacco companies are like, (laughs) well, all tobacco is toasted. And he's like, yeah, but they don't say that. Right. And I feel like everybody's going to try and say that their product is the best. Yeah, 100%. So we will help decipher things as the industry changes and as more people get interested. Definitely. We can decipher some listener mail now. That sounds good. Our first note comes to us from Fee in New Zealand. She writes, Hello from New Zealand, and thanks for the show. Even though I'm down here on a little housing bubble island in the Pacific, I'm sure that there will be other listeners who will be asking if it's also time to give up on home ownership. A couple of years ago, after paying my student loan, I decided my next financial goal was owning an apartment. 
In New Zealand, you can make a one-time penalty-free withdrawal from your retirement savings if you put the money towards a first home purchase. With that in mind, I transferred my investment balance to a conservative fund suited to withdraw in two to three years. My plan was to use that money plus save to reach the goal of a $100,000 house deposit. I should specify that all numbers here are in New Zealand dollars. I left any new contributions from my wages or my employer match, 4% by me and 5% from my employer, buying into an aggressive fund for retirement. Cut forward to 2021. My plan just seems silly. House prices in my city increased 25% in the last year. The kind of one to two bedroom unit I wanted now goes for $750,000 to $800,000. I now have $62,000 in the conservative fund and $40,000 in my house deposit savings account, earning very little. Is all this money going backwards while house prices explode? I'm worried that if I stick with my plan for too long and housing prices never drop, I'll miss out on years better put toward investing for retirement that doesn't involve homeownership. Should I move the conservative $62,000 back into a more aggressive fund? Should I move my $40,000 in savings into an aggressive investment? And if I do make this U-turn, should I try to dollar cost average by drip feeding into the market? Every fortnight, I put $800 of savings, about a third of my take-home pay, into my house savings account. Should I start feeding that into shares or at least splitting it so some is invested and some goes into the house fund? I'm 36, I have no debt and a steady income. Aside from my house deposit savings, I have a $10,000 emergency fund, about 12,000 in shares, and the 13,000 in my aggressive retirement savings I've accumulated through those ongoing fund contributions. I suppose I could throw all that toward a house, but I don't want all my money in one basket. Aside from the numbers, this is causing me a lot of stress. I felt so happy and in control of my money after I paid my student loan, but now my plan seems unachievable. I'm finding it much harder to make decisions about my money or stick to my savings habits. I feel really unmotivated and I hate how much I worry about money. I think about the fact that I'm getting too old to buy a house and I feel embarrassed that I still rent a room. I've considered trying to buy with a friend or moving to a small town, but neither are the things I want for myself or my life. I've also thought about leaving my public servant job to go private and earn more, but I really like my job and work-life balance is more important to me. I do have a partner, and she's also house hunting in a similarly frustrated way, but we've only been together for about a year and we aren't ready to live together, let alone buy something together. Do you have any insights on how to rebalance or reset my goal? Thank you so much. Well, first of all, Fee, I just want to say how much I love your name. I don't know if anybody saw Four Weddings and a Funeral with Hugh Grant all those years ago. Hugh Grant when he was all squishy around the edges. And Fee was my favorite character. I think it's an amazing name. I'm so glad you're listening. And I'm really happy to receive your letter. 36 is nowhere near too old to buy a house. No, Nowhere near too old to buy a house. You can buy a house in five years. You can buy a house in 10 years. You can buy a house in 20 years. I know we talk a lot about not having a mortgage payment in retirement on this show, but there are many ways to pay down a mortgage quickly as you age. And so I want you to just wipe that away from your thinking. 
It also is really, really troubling to me that you're getting demoralized, although I completely understand it. I bought my house, the one that I moved into after I got divorced in 2005. It was in the midst of a housing bubble in New York and in my neighborhood. I've told this story many times that there's no way that I, in my right mind, should have bought that house. But I I bought that house because I wanted a place where my kids would be as at home when they were with me as they were when they were with their dad. And to me, that equated to buying rather than renting. But renting would have been a much smarter financial move because within a couple of years, housing prices headed down in a very substantial way. I'm not saying that that is what's going to happen now. But the last paragraph of your letter actually gives me a sense of how in flux your life may actually be. I would never advise you to buy something that you didn't expect to live in for at least five years. You've got a partner that you've been with for a year. If you see this as a long-term relationship, and your partner sees this as a long-term relationship, that may, in the not-too-distant future, a year from now, two years from now, change the equation for what you're looking for. And so I would shake up your investments a bit. I would take the money that you've got in the conservative fund and reallocate it so that it's in line with your investment goals for the long term. I'd probably do that by dollar cost averaging because the markets are so frothy right now that I wouldn't want to see you get in at what is the utmost high. And I do think that with the Omicron variant, with the ongoing pandemic, with so many unknowables in the world, we are going to see some decent volatility. So I'd reallocate that basket. I'd take the savings basket and I'd continue to build towards some sort of a down payment while continuing to put more money into your aggressive funds for retirement. And I just let it go for the next couple of years until you figure out what's happening in your life outside this house. I think things are going to become clearer for you in that way. And maybe in the interim, the housing market, which you're right, has gotten very, very bubbly, will do us all a favor and as interest rates rise, correct a little bit. Yeah, Jean, I totally agree. And I just want to say that I bought my first house at 38, my first apartment at 38, And I also felt like I was way behind, mostly because I'm from Alabama, which is a state in the United States where the property costs are very, very low. So all of my high school friends and college friends bought places in their 20s. And you can't compare what you're doing to what anybody else is doing. And you are so well prepared with how much money you've saved. And it sounds like you and your partner are happy. So don't be in a rush. Absolutely. You know, that's such an interesting point too, Catherine, that we do compare. I'm like you. I'm from West Virginia. I'm from a state where people got married really early. They bought property really early. If we start holding up our lives to the lives of the people around us, we're always going to feel awful. 
It's the wrong kind of mirror to be looking in. Focus on all of the amazing things that you're doing. Your rate of saving is really, really good. So I have absolutely no doubt that whether you buy in five years or 10 years or later than that, you will eventually buy the house you want to buy and you'll pay off that mortgage and it will provide you with a supplemental savings account that'll be a real asset in retirement. Love that. Our next note today comes to us from Chanel. She writes, hello, Jean. First, I want to thank you for hosting the podcast. I love the show and listen to it often. I started my new job 90 days ago and was offered a simple IRA with 3% matching through my employer. I already have a Roth IRA through the Oregon Saves Initiative because I was previously employed through nonprofits that did not offer retirement options. I contribute $500 a month to max out my $6,000 limit. I was thrilled and so excited to learn about a 3% match, and I wanted to take advantage of the program. The simple IRA was through Wells Fargo, and the financial investor, we'll call him Chad, called me as I was filling out the paperwork through my employer. The problem was he kept calling me at not the best times without an appointment during my workday, and we would spend about five minutes going over very complicated things. Then at the end of the conversation, I was more confused than before. To solve this, I created my own worksheet of sorts and emailed it to Chad. I looked up a list of questions to ask a financial advisor, like how would I be able to review my performance? What are his fees? And I also provided a few mutual funds I've been watching for the last year with my own brokerage account, and I was interested about his financial philosophy and what he uses to measure the success of an account. I also said that I preferred to converse over email because it's more convenient and it helps me digest information. Chad emailed me back, CC'd my corporate director, and advised me that after reviewing my questions, he didn't think we would be a good match and then declined to open an account for me. I am mortified and horribly embarrassed. I called and scheduled a consultation appointment with a different local financial advisor who's offered me a one-hour discussion over Zoom or in person on my lunch break instead of those broken three- to five-minute fast-paced and interrupted conversations, so I'm relieved to know there is good help out there. My question is, what are my options now? Is a simple IRA completely off the table now that I was denied an account by Chad because I asked too many questions? Any help regarding my inquiry would be greatly appreciated. Thank you in advance, and I love the show. Oh, my God. This is just a horrible, horrible experience. And let me just say, like, off the bat, the fault is not yours, Chanel. It's Chad's. Chad is the one who should be mortified and embarrassed. Your employer pays Wells Fargo, who pays Chad in order to provide you this service. Your employer is providing you this service and your employer, I don't know if you have benefits, I don't know if you have HR, I don't know if you're in a small company that has a director who should be taking up your back at this horrible treatment. They are the customer You're the customer, and the fact that this guy couldn't see you on your own time, at a convenient time, couldn't or wouldn't answer your questions is just inconscionable. 
Of course, you should still be able to open the simple. Of course, you should still be able to contribute enough to get the 3% match. That is free money that your company has offered you. You should 100% take advantage of it, but you should get your questions answered. So here's what we're going to do. We are going to take this offline. I have been a personal finance reporter for many years. I have a lot of contacts in the industry, including people at Wells Fargo who I know would bend over backward to help you with this. And so we're going to get you to a person who can just expedite this for you get the account open before the end of the year or before your open enrollment period expires and deal with it. I'm angry based on this letter and we're going to make sure that you get the account open and that you get the treatment that you deserve. I had a feeling this question was going to get you fired up because I'm also very angry. This is ridiculous. Thank you, Jean, for the great advice as always. Absolutely. And in today's Thrive, six trends in sustainable fashion to watch in 2022. Sustainable fashion, yep, it's having a moment. While some style mavens have been opting for eco-friendly, ethically made clothing for years, lately sustainability seems to be fashion's hottest trend. More than 50% of shoppers say they've made significant lifestyle changes to reduce their environmental impacts since the start of the pandemic. During COVID, we all slowed down and in many cases, cleaned out our closets and really took note of our own impact on climate change. And these days, the sustainable fashion industry is more accessible than ever. At hermoney.com, we've got all the details on eco-friendly fashion, biodegradable materials, and fashion recycling. A few of our favorite trends include the capsule wardrobe. During the pandemic, the need to buy new clothes for work or for going out pretty much disappeared. We found ourselves shopping our own closets and wearing the same work-from-home looks again and again. We collectively realized that the clothes currently in our wardrobes, they just worked, and they worked for multiple occasions. And because of this, capsule wardrobes became a very popular trend, which is great for sustainability. So what are they exactly? Capsule is a curated collection of clothes and accessories designed to be mixed and matched and last for years. And to start creating your own capsule wardrobe, first assess what you already have, what colors, what kind of clothes you like to wear, donate or sell what doesn't fit your style, and then buy that one amazing piece, like a black high-end blazer that you know you're going to get a lot of wear out of. Think pure cotton, wool, or silk, good fabrics that can last forever if you care for them. Every capsule wardrobe should include basics, like a couple of button-down shirts, pencil skirts, and slacks in different colors of your choosing. Next, Keep an eye out for items made with biodegradable materials like rose petal silk, cactus, pineapple, 
pineapple clothes? Yes, pineapple, mango, and mushroom leather. Now, maybe these sound a little unfamiliar to you right now, but there is no shortage of bio-based materials and the fashion industry is experimenting with all of it. And thanks to technological advances and more competition, the price of these eco-friendly items is starting to come down. With any luck, environmentally damaging fabrics will soon be a thing of the past. I want to thank you so much for joining me today on Her Money. Thanks to Jean Case for her guidance and insight on how we can invest our heart and consciousness while also making money. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll subscribe to our show at Apple Podcasts. Leave us a review because we love hearing what you think. We'd like to thank our sponsor, Fidelity and BCU. We produce this podcast out of CDM Sound Studios. Our music is provided by Video Helper, and our show comes to you through Megaphone. Thanks for joining us, and we'll talk soon.